Lord, as we now prepare our own hearts to come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word and we remember that Your Word is breathed out by the Spirit and that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. Oh God, we can only confess to You that apart from Your grace working in us, there is no good work that we are capable of doing. And so we thank You for Your grace working in our lives, and we pray that You would use this ordinary means of sanctifying grace, the preaching of Your Word, to grow us in the likeness of Christ. We pray that You would drive out any darkness in our hearts and our minds, and that You would fill it with Your light, that we may walk in the light as You are in the light, and that we may love Your light. God, we pray that You would bless this time. Use it for the glory of Christ and conform us to His likeness. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 7 today, uh, getting all the way through chapter 7 continue in our study. Um, One of the things that we have seen in uh, in our study of 1 Samuel is the apostasy of Israel. And the answer to apostasy is repentance. That is the only answer to apostasy. Now apostasy is sometimes full-blown. Sometimes somebody will completely walk away from God and never look back. But sometimes somebody will Walk away from God just for a season. There will be some type of issue going on, and, and they'll walk away for a season. Maybe they got hurt by other Christians or something like that, but they haven't completely closed the door on God. Of course, we know if somebody is a full-blown apostate, if they have completely walked away from the faith, uh, the, it's impossible for them to come back. But what about those who have not completely closed the door, but they have just walked away for whatever reason? The answer is always repentance. In fact, our confession, the London Baptist Confession, has a chapter on repentance in which it says that it's necessary for us to continue preaching repentance because repentance is so central to the Christian life. There never comes a point in our lives where there's not something that we need to repent of. And to that end, God has given us emotions. Now, hear me out. Emotions can be a terrible thing because we can be ruled by our emotions. But emotions are not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I I believe that emotions can be actually a very good thing. Uh, God designed us with emotions and everything that God has made is, is good. I think he knew exactly what he was doing when he gave us emotions and that our emotions actually have a specific purpose for them. What's the chief end of man? We know it, right? Because I've said it in so many sermons. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And if that is our chief end, and it is, of course, then I think that it's reasonable to conclude that our emotions are designed, are intended to be a means to that end. Now again, it's possible for our emotions to control us, to, to master us, and thus it's important that we 
and be very intentional about mastering our own emotions, and yet there are certain emotions that I think we will all have to admit are difficult, if not impossible, for us to control or contain in the moment. Uh, And there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that. Let me be clear about that. There's not necessarily anything wrong about that. Uh, For example, I had difficulty containing my emotions when I stood on the altar of this little church in Colorado where Christina and I were married uh, as I waited for her to come down the aisle. And when she did, I lost control of my emotions for just a minute. That wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I actually saw it in my son-in-law when he married my daughter. Uh, No, the only time that I would say emotions are a bad thing is when they lead us to sin, when they master us and lead us to sin. And that's what they tend to do if we don't regain control of our emotions. And make no mistake about it, that's exactly what will happen if we don't regain control of our emotions. They will lead us to sin. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Now some Christians think that it's a sin just to be angry. If that's the case, I don't know what you do with verses that talk about God's anger towards sin, because God doesn't sin. No, there is such thing as righteous anger. It's okay to be angry as long as it doesn't lead us to sin. So yes, emotions can cause us to sin, but emotions can also be a catalyst that leads us away from sin, a catalyst that leads us toward repentance. At one point, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he said this to them. He said in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, he said, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God now what an important thing repentance is because without repentance sin just masters us and that's what a blessed thing this this sorrow that Paul is speaking about actually is in fact historically uh Protestant Christians have affirmed that repentance is actually part of the gospel. Uh, John Gill, famous Reformed Baptist uh, from uh, the Reformed era, uh, wrote that, quote, the doctrine of repentance is not of the law, but is of the gospel, end quote. Uh, John Calvin agreed. He wrote that, quote, "Can uh, can true repentance exist without faith? By no means. But although they cannot be separated, they ought to be distinguished, end quote. And that's just to say that faith and repentance are not the same thing, and yet what they are is a package deal. You can't have one without having them both. And so where you find one, you will find both, faith and repentance. And so if our lives are marked by faith, as they should be, our lives will also be marked by repentance. Paul continued to address the Corinthians regarding their their sorrow, their sorrowful repentance. He added this in verse 10. He said, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, there are two kinds of sorrow. Maybe even you might even say two kinds of repentance. Uh, sorrow that does not lead to true repentance is a terrible thing. Sorrow that doesn't lead you to repent only produces death, Paul says. But sorrow that leads to true repentance 
is a wonderful thing. Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this. He said that, quote, Godly sorrow is a plant of God's own planting. It is a seed of His own sowing. It is a flower of His own setting. It is of a heavenly offspring. It is from God and God alone. The spirit of mourning is from above. It is from a supernatural power and principle, end quote. And so, since God has given us every heavenly blessing... And since there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, what we should understand is that this sorrow is actually a good gift from God's hand. This is important for us to remember as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel because the last thing we saw, if you've got your Bibles open, look at chapter 7, verse 2. The last thing we saw in chapter 7, verse 2 was that the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What a blessed thing that is. This is actually a sign of spiritual life, of spiritual vitality, which took place in a time in which Israel, in all honesty, appeared to have absolutely zero spiritual vitality whatsoever. But what this shows us is that God was not done with them. They had brought the ark of Yahweh, if you remember, out onto the battlefield back in chapter 4. And when they did, the Israelites were were routed by the Philistines. And the ark was captured by the Philistines, who brought the ark of Yahweh, the ark of the covenant, back to the city of Ashdod, where they put it in the temple of their own god, their own false god, their own idol, uh, the house of Dagon. But Yahweh, uh, in the house of Dagon, slayed their idol, uh, and, and then caused disease and pestilence to fall upon the land wherever they moved the ark. They started realizing there was a correlation between where they were keeping the ark, where the Philistines were keeping the ark, and where this pestilence was spreading. And so after seven months of that, the Philistines decided to bring the ark of Yahweh back to the Israelites. And when they did, what we saw is that the Israelites still showed it no reverence, still showed God no reverence. And God therefore struck down many for looking either into it or upon the ark as it sat out in the middle of a field on a stone for all to see like a common object. And eventually, the Israelites were in the same predicament that the Philistines had been in. They were thinking, what are we going to do with, with this ark? Really what it was was their problem with the God of the ark. Not the ark of Yahweh, but the God of the ark. They decided they needed to get rid of this ark. And thus it ended up in the hands of a Gibeonite people in a region called Kiriath-Jerim, where it would stay for 20 years. Half of a generation. So 20 years passed between verse 2 and verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 7, which is why we ended with verse 2 in our previous lesson, and why we're starting with verse 3 in this sermon. And since verse 2 begins by telling us, from the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was 20 years. And since that verse ended by telling us that, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, we can probably assume it took 20 years for them to reach this point of sorrow, of lamenting after the Lord. 20 years. It's only after 20 years that they are finally ready to repent. And that might sound crazy 
Because 20 years is a very, very long time. But we need to understand how inclined toward sin the flesh is. And that's exactly, that number is exactly what that shows us. So let's remember that there is true repentance that leads to life, and there is false repentance that leads only to death. What a blessed emotion their sorrowful lamenting could be. Could be if it's a sorrow that leads to true repentance. But how can we know? How can we know if their repentance is a true repentance or a false repentance? How can we know if they're, they're just sorry that, you know, that they're living without God's blessing and all the blessings that go along with walking in fellowship with God? Or uh, do, do, they, do they just miss that? Or do they actually hate their sin? Do they actually want to turn from their sin? And that's the subject of the chapter at hand. The point of this chapter is this. It's that true repentance goes beyond simply feeling sorry for our sin. It starts there. It begins there. But it goes on to forsake sin and turn to God with a new commitment to single-mindedness and devotion unto God. So God had sent the prophet Samuel for this very hour in Israel's history, Samuel would be the one God would use to call them to true repentance so as to bring Israel back to God from all of her years, 20 years of backsliding and apostasy. And as he does, we'll see how entirely relevant this subject is, uh, the subject of repentance is for Christians as well. After all, are we not also prone to wander? I mean, we sing it in the song, right? Prone to wander, aren't we? Yeah, we are. So it's relevant for us. Do Christians not backslide? They do. They do it fairly commonly. And maybe you have as well. But let Samuel show us. Let God show us through Samuel how to come back to God if this is you. Let's start with verses 3-4. to four. Uh, 3 and 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote that infidelity is the mother of apostasy. Infidelity is the mother of apostasy, and that's why infidelity is such a dangerous thing. If you have a poisonous spider that's going to lay eggs in your house, what do you do? Do you wait for all the eggs to be hatched and then try to take them out one at a time, or do you kill the mother? You take care of the mother, right? Infidelity is the mother of apostasy. And Israel was certainly guilty of infidelity. If they were going to come back to God, they were going to have to address this issue, their unfaithfulness, their infidelity. But the point is that apostasy doesn't just begin in a vacuum. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. It starts with certain signs, certain symptoms, and as those signs and symptoms 
grow. As they worsen, a person draws closer and closer to apostasy and further and further away from God, eventually abandoning the faith. And this is why, as your pastor, I, I grow really concerned when I see people start to attend church less and less frequently because that can be one of those signs and symptoms. In fact, it's a strong indication that something else has become more important to a person than God. I've seen this happen in this very congregation. The next thing you know, a person has completely replaced God with something else that now sits upon the throne of that person's heart. It happens. We've exercised church discipline here because we've seen it happen. Other gods, false gods that is, idols, had taken a comfortable seat at the throne of Israel's heart as a nation to the grandson of Eli, the former priest, uh, and which means no glory. The name Ichabod was entirely fitting for them. God removed the symbol of His glory. He removed the symbol of His presence and blessing from Israel because Israel had exchanged the true living God for mute, dumb, lifeless idols. And eventually, by God's grace, they lamented doing so because all they had in their sin was misery and enslavement. And it's important for us to see this because we should know that that is all that sin has to offer. It promises all these great things, all this joy, all this happiness. But I guarantee you, every single time, it is a dead-end road at slavery and misery. That's the consequence of idolatry. Jesus once said, John 8.34 Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Similarly, Paul said uh, to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 16 of his letter to the Romans, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Sin leads to Slavery, misery, death. And if if that's true, and it is, the question is, what hope is there for sinners like Israel? What hope is there for sinners like us, like anyone? And the answer is always the same. The answer is God's grace. God's grace is the hope for sinners God's grace is our only hope, and God is always eager to welcome sinners who humbly come to Him seeking His grace and mercy. His grace is always more than we need. His mercies are new every morning. And it seems entirely possible that nobody in Israel knew or remembered these things. Nobody maybe except for Samuel. Samuel knew the hope that's found in God's grace. And so he proceeded to do two things as he goes before Israel in this chapter. The first thing he does in in these verses is he leads them into a right state of repentance, making sure that their repentance is a true repentance, making sure that their repentance is not just, oh, sorry that we got caught. No, it's, sorry, we hate the sin. 
right? Making sure that they really did have the right attitude, that they really did have the right motivation to truly come back to God. That it wasn't just something outwardly, but that it was something inwardly. And the second thing that he does, as we're going to see as we continue through the chapter, is he led them by praying for them as their intercessor. So he says here in verse 3, if... And let's just stop there and consider that this single word indicates that it is contingent. It's, con- it's conditional, right? He says, if you return to the Lord with all your heart. Not your mind. Your, your, mind is, your mind can be filled with all kinds of things. You can know all kinds of things. But in the Bible, your heart represents the center of your actions. The center of, of, what, uh, of your being that you know, motivates and directs your actions. And what we must see is that this is where true repentance begins. It begins with a true desire to return to the Lord. It's not a half-hearted desire. It's not a double-minded desire. It is a single-minded desire. It is the whole heart that God is looking for. He isn't interested in sharing you. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, he says. And once this hurdle is cleared, then what must they do? That's what he says as he, as he continues, urging them, remove the foreign gods, the idols. Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. Alone is always such an important word. Protestants love that word, don't we? Alone. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. If they want to return to the Lord, they must deal first with the idols that were contending for their hearts. What Samuel's ultimately doing here is calling for Israel to repent of their idolatry. Because it's impossible to return to God and yet dismiss the first of the Ten Commandments. You can, you can pretend to come back to God. You can, you can look like you're coming back to God. But if you do not forsake your idols, if you do not forsake your false gods, it's not going back wholeheartedly. You can't return to God with your whole heart and continue to serve idols. Samuel knew that the first commandment, which is what? It's that you shall have no other gods before me. That was more than just tossing a couple uh, chiseled pieces of wood or iron into the, the fireplace. He knew that it was actually a lifestyle that involved serving Yahweh and only Yahweh. He knew, as we must know, That true repentance goes beyond simply being sorry for a sin, but it begins there, but it goes on to actually forsake sin, to cast it aside, and to turn to God with a new commitment to single minded devotion. The false gods contending for their hearts were the Baals and the Ashtaroth, we learn in verse 4. Now, Baal was the Canaanite god of storms, and Asherah was his wife. Together they represented uh, these gods of fertility and crops. The idea being that by worshiping these false gods, the people would be guaranteed or would at least increase their likelihood of receiving sufficient rainfall for a good year of, uh, of harvest, of crops. 
Now, it might sound to you and, and to me like, well, that would be really easy to turn away from these gods. Of course, nobody believes in these superstitions really, do they? Uh, so it sounds like it would be really easy to cast these false gods aside as if false gods never entice us, right? They do. The fact is that they do. And it's never easy to cast them aside. In the case of the Israelites, the first thing that made this challenging was the fact that if they were actually to do this, if they were really going to forsake these idols, it would mean being radically different from the culture around them. Being radically different from the world. You might even say that it was culturally fashionable at the time, that it was the in thing to worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth. I hope you see where this is going for us as we consider the equivalent in our own culture today. No, we don't have Baals and Ashtaroth, but does our culture have gods that it worships? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can be assured that the world around us still has their culturally in, their culturally fashionable idols. Uh, Social justice has been a huge one for years now. God is the one who defines justice. And what the culture is asking for is not what God has defined justice to be. Uh, That includes, by the way, the the social justice movement. That includes all the affirmation of the alphabet mafia and all that. You have churches that claim to be Christian that worship before these false gods. Feminism has been another one, a, a big one. Many churches have likewise bowed before that idol as well. The fact is that the culture's idols, the culture's false gods, can look like any number of things. But for the Christian, it is never, ever acceptable for us to allow the same gods that the culture worships to be the gods that we bow before ourselves. Or have we forgotten that James warns us about this thing very specifically? He warns us very specifically about this kind of idolatry, worshiping the world's idols. When he writes this, he says in James 4.4, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Similarly, the the Apostle John gives us this warning. He says in 1 John 2.15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are terrifying things. What a contradiction it is when the church mirrors the culture, mirrors the world. When the church looks no different and has the same message that the world has. The world never, never mirrors the church. It never resembles the church. This type of thing only happens when the backslidden Christian or the backslidden church copies and mirrors and resembles the world. And when the church does this, when the individual Christian does this, the way back to God is to completely forsake the world's false gods and turn with his whole heart back to the Lord. You can't come back to the Lord and say, well, I'm still going to hold on to this and that from the world because I like these things and that, that's going to make sure that you know, the world likes me and accepts me, but I'll also have one foot in God's camp. 
No, God is looking for single-minded devotion. A second thing that made this kind of repentance difficult for Israel was the fact that, as Richard Phillips notes, quote, uh, quote, idol worship was sensually appealing. The worship of Baal and Asherah involved offerings of ritual sex so as to leverage their powers for fertility, end quote. Now think about it. Think about how sinful, how the sinful ways of the world still appeal to our fallen nature. They, they still seek to enslave the Christian. The sinful ways of the world are still so appealing on so many levels to our depraved nature that only a supernatural act of God can break such enslavement. That's why the Scriptures teach us that God must be the one to grant repentance. God must be the one to grant repentance. In his second letter to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 25, that Timothy must persevere with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. If repentance is a good thing, and it is, and nothing good comes from our flesh, and it doesn't, God must be the one to grant repentance. God requires And God is worthy of nothing less than single-minded devotion. Single-minded devotion. So let me ask you today, who or what contends with God for the throne of your heart? What tempts you, for example, not to gather with the saints on the Lord's day to worship Him as His Word instructs? What threatens to take away time that you could spend reading God's Word or praying on a daily basis? The answer is this, when you identify whatever that might be. And it could be different for everybody. The answer is always the same though. Cleanse your hearts. Rid your lives of anything that contends with God for your loyalty, for your heart. If you want to experience and enjoy the fullness of God's power and blessing and presence in your lives, single-minded devotion is what you're looking for. Quit allowing the competition for your heart into your life. Repent of it. Now, it wasn't an easy move for the Israelites. Again, to us it might seem like it would have been, but it wouldn't have been an easy move on their own. It was impossible. God would have to be the one to do it. But we see the sufficiency of God's grace enabling them as we read in verse 4. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. There's that key word again. Again. A single-minded devotion. Now that doesn't mean that you just spend your whole day like a monk in prayer. No, what it means is that you aim everything in your life toward glorifying God. Paul instructs us to glorify God in everything that we do, whether we eat or drink, or those are just the common things of everyday life, right? But everything we do is to glorify God. And in those things, we are capable of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. 
Know this, friends. Know that repentance always, always, always involves a renewed passion for this single-minded devotion and for holy living. Why do we struggle to enjoy God? Why do we feel such a sense of strife when it comes to serving and glorifying Him alone? Why is it so difficult for us to experience a sense of His presence and blessing in our lives? It's because we struggle with being single-minded. It's because we are so inclined to be double-minded. It's because of our love and our natural inclination of our flesh to sin. James Blakey writes this in his commentary. He says, quote, We are to remember that the people of Israel in their typical significance stand for those who are by grace in covenant with God and that their times of degeneracy represent, in the case of Christians, seasons of spiritual backsliding when the things of this world are too keenly sought, when the fellowship of the world is habitually resorted to, when the soul loses its spiritual appetite and religious services become formal and cold, end quote. We are to learn from Israel's example. Repentance of our double-mindedness is the way back to God. So the first thing that Samuel did was make sure that Israel's repentance was true. That it was real. And glory be to God whose mercies are new every morning. It was It was. And so Samuel then proceeded to pray for them as their intercessor. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. We read, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered in Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So Samuel calls the people of Israel to gather at Mizpah, which is a region about five miles north of Jerusalem, where he would pray for them, since he knew that their repentance was real. How did he know their repentance was real? Because they threw the false gods away. They cast them aside, turning to the Lord. And so as they gather here, we're told that the people drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. Now, we don't see people being instructed to, to draw water and pour it out before the Lord. We don't see this really anywhere else uh, like we see it here. But it seems to be symbolic of just casting aside uh, false gods that were contending in their hearts for uh, their steadfast devotion unto the Lord. And the fasting, of course, was a symbolic act that represented their, uh, their humiliation, their, their desperate need and heartfelt grief uh, for, for sin and for, for grace. Uh, so they confessed as one together, we have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. They have confessed their sin. They have not only acknowledged it, they're not just saying we did it, but they're grieving over it. It took 20 years. 20 years of enslavement to the Philistines and oppression by the Philistines. 20 years of misery in their sin for them to come to this point. 20 years. Think about that. 
And as you think about that, ask yourself, whom do you know who has walked away from the faith or appears to have walked away from the faith? You haven't given up hope on that person, have you? Or maybe you're the parent of what we would refer to as a prodigal child. You haven't given up on them, have you? You never give up on them. Maybe it'll take them 20 years of oppression, frustration, desperation, misery for them to realize what they've lost as well and to come to their senses. 20 years is a long time, but it's not as long as eternity. So Samuel served here as an an intercessor, a mediator of sorts before God for them. Clearly, we see that he is a foreshadow of Christ who, we're told, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. But Samuel, as we're going to see, he's really only getting started in this role. Israel's repentance was going to be tested. And you've got to know, if you're going to repent, if there's a time in your life where you start to walk away from the Lord and you decide, you know what, I'm going to go back to the Lord. I'm, I'm going to serve Him with, with wholehearted devotion. You need to know that your own repentance will be tested whenever we repent of our double-mindedness. Let's continue, verses 7 to 11. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far, uh, as, far as below Bethkar. So when the Philistines found out that their gods had been disrespected, found out that their gods had been forsaken and cast down, how do you think they felt about that? They didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. They they weren't happy at all about it. The world never appreciates her false gods being cast down. And you better know this. And at this point, the Israelites... We're not a military power to be reckoned with at all. No, they were actually weak. Uh, They were vulnerable to attack by the enemy. And they are absolutely powerless against the enemy. And the reality is, they know it. They know it. They know that if the Philistines come to them and God Himself does not do something to stop them, that they are as good as dead. So what do they do about it? They stand their ground. Their repentance is real. Their single-minded devotion to the Lord is real. They stand their ground looking to and trusting entirely and only in Yahweh. And they urge Samuel to continue praying for them, interceding for them. Exactly what they should have done, by the way. 
Finally, they, they do something right. This is actually the first time in this book that we've seen the nation of Israel do something right. So what a turn of events that they would now trust God so completely, so single-mindedly for the first time in so long. Maybe the first time since Samson. I want to show you what a drastic change this is. And we see it very clearly by comparing two texts in 1 Samuel. They say to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that He, that's the word there, the key word there, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now contrast that with their words at the beginning of chapter 4 as they, uh, they brought the ark of God out onto the battlefield and they justified their actions in doing so by saying, Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it, he versus it, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So back in chapter 4, they're trusting in this object that represents God, but they're not trusting in God. In chapter 7, they're trusting entirely in God himself. They don't even have the ark back yet. All they've got is God. Their faith is back exactly where it belongs. Not in idols, not even in a sacred object like the Ark of Yahweh, but in Yahweh Himself, in Yahweh alone. And so Samuel continues operating, acting as their, their mediator, their, their intercessor, praying for them and making an offering to God on their behalf. A suckling lamb and uh, and he offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Hebrews 9.22 explains why Samuel sacrificed this suckling lamb. It says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. So why, we must ask, why is the shedding of blood necessary? And the answer is because the wage of sin is death. That is to say that every sin is worthy of death. That's because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Only and entirely by His mercy... God has provided a means of making the forgiveness of sins possible. The blood of animals never truly atoned for sins, but they foreshadowed and pointed us to the one whose blood did cast away sins, did cover sins, was efficacious for the forgiveness of sins. And that was the blood of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent into the world by the Father, as we read in Matthew one twenty one, to save His people from their sins. That is to say that He did not come to atone for everybody's sins. He only came to present Himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of His people. He only saves His people from their sins. And this is why we plead with, this is why we urge those who are enslaved to sin to look to Jesus and to believe on Him and to believe on Him alone. Because He's the only one who has provided what God requires in order for our sins 
to be forgiven, in order for us to be cleansed of our sins. The message of Samuel's sacrifice is the same message as the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. The message is twofold. Number one, no sinner in history can be forgiven by God without offering atoning blood. And number two, any and every sinner may come to God and be forgiven through the atoning blood of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The door is open to anyone and everyone. And it's the only door. What a foreshadowing image we see here. As Samuel makes this this sacrifice of this suckling lamb, the Lord thunders from heaven and causes confusion to set in on the Philistines. Isn't that an interesting judgment against the Philistines? He, he doesn't strike them down with lightning. I, he, he could have done that, right? He, he doesn't strike them down of, you know, heart attacks. He, he doesn't just like wipe them out, decimate them right there. No, he causes them to become confused. And in the same way, the Lord took our sin upon himself on Calvary And as he did, it became pitch black outside. Now, when night comes, uh, you would be prepared with torches and, and such. But you wouldn't be prepared with torches and such out in the middle of the day. You'd just be confused and lost in darkness. So why does Israel prevail against the Philistines on this day that we're reading about in 1 Samuel 7? It's because of the sacrifice and prayers of another whose prayers are effectual. It's because of the prayers and sacrifice of another whose prayers and offering are effectual. It's the same reason that Christians stand strong in our faith today. It's because Jesus is actually interceding for you. Do you know what would happen to each one of us if he stopped? (laughs) We would just be swept away in this same kind of confusion we'd become as confused as the world is right now. We would be lost. We would be swept away by sin. The only reason that we stand strong and persevere in our faith today is because Christ Himself is interceding constantly for us. What a great blessing that is to know that right now, that every moment of every day, He's praying for you. If you've believed in Him, He prays for you as your intercessor, as your high priest, constantly, continually. As Israel's enemies are subdued, Samuel commemorates the victory and gives, us a t- uh, gives the people and us a tangible reminder of God's gracious aid. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it, Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Now this verse sort of just stands out on its own in the chapter. It kind of divides the chapter up, but it's an extremely significant verse. Uh, We might say, okay, so Samuel, just he marks the site. We've seen this before in Scripture. He marks the site to commemorate this big victory. So what? The significance has a lot to do with Samuel being, he's been referred to as a judge here, 
but he is very unique if we want to refer to him as a judge. Technically, he's more of a prophet than a judge. Uh, the previous judges were warriors. The previous judges uses, used weapons of war and might to free God's people. But Samson didn't. Uh, but but, uh, but uh, Samuel didn't. Samuel's weapons were worship and prayer. He was no Samson. He was no Gideon. Those guys were great warriors who used weapons. No, Samuel uses words and worship. He was different from any judges that came before him. He names the location Ebenezer. And that's significant for us because we do sing that in a song, right? Here I raise my Ebenezer. And it might sound like you're talking about a chalice or are are you toasting something or what does it mean to raise your Ebenezer? Uh, Well, you might remember that Ebenezer was also the name of the battle battle scene that took place in chapter 4. Not the same place. So, So this is a word that we've been exposed to, but we might not understand exactly what it means here. Uh, but it's not the site of the, of the battle. This is Mizpah. He names it Ebenezer. Yes, just like the line in Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, we're told, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So what we should see is that there's a connection between the name Ebenezer and what he says here. Till now the Lord has helped us. See, Samuel wasn't the, the helper. Samuel wasn't the deliverer. God was. God had always been the one to deliver them. He was the king. He was the leader that they needed all along. And now, at this point in the text, God had proven that fact that God was the one they needed all along. He has proven that irrefutably for His people. And what Samuel's doing by, uh, by, by making this site called Ebenezer, he wanted to commemorate that for the future. Previously, God had refused to help His people, at least the way that they had in mind, because of their unfaithfulness. But now, having repented and returned to the Lord with single-minded devotion, they had personally witnessed God's help firsthand as the Philistines get wiped out. That's the point that Samuel is trying to make here. One article says it well. It says, in Hebrew, Ebenezer means stone of help. Samuel wanted the people to remember, not just for a few days, but for years, for decades, for generations, how God had come to the rescue of His people when they humbled themselves before Him. End quote. As Christians, we have times like this to look back on, don't we? We should. If we, if we think about it for a second, we do. Uh, times we look back on and know uh, undeniably and irrefutably that God helped us in whatever that situation was. And, and it's good for us to look back on those times, to, to raise our own Ebenezers, if you will, especially in times when our faith is wavering, when we're not just tempted to be double-minded, but we're actually acting upon being double-minded when we feel like we're, we're just far away, becoming far away from God. Because it's in those moments that we too must remember that till now, the Lord has helped us. We have relied on His grace all along. God has proved His love. And God has proved His faithfulness, faithfulness to us, hasn't He? 
The greatest display of these things, of course, is the cross where Jesus took our sin upon Himself and simultaneously transferred or imputed His own perfect righteousness to all of His people. That's that's how He saved His people from His sins. He presented Himself as an offering, imputing His own perfect righteousness. Not only taking away their sins, but imputing, transferring His perfect righteousness to them. Because we need both. We, We need to be cleansed of our sin, and we need to have the righteousness of God Himself. And that's what Jesus did on Calvary. That's where where God proved His love and faithfulness to all who believe on Jesus. If we can look to that, if we can look to the cross and see God's love for us then, then how can we doubt or deny God's help now in the present if we will only look to Him with a single-minded faith and devotion? The cross is one of our Ebenezer's. The times in which God has shown His power and grace uniquely at work in our lives, those are our Ebenezer's. The Lord's Supper is one of our Ebenezer's. It's a a tangible reminder of God's goodness to us. uh, That He would help us when we were helpless. That He would raise Christ from the dead to prove the sufficiency of Christ's work and the greatness of His love is our Ebenezer. Even this very morning, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then up to this time in your life, throughout your entire life, it's only because the Lord has helped you. The Lord has helped you. You have relied on His grace, and it has proved sufficient all along. Just like God's love and deliverance were demonstrated on the cross, God's defeat of the Philistines demonstrated His covenant love and His power to help, His power to deliver. And it led to a new era of peace in Israel. Uh, Let's finish this chapter up looking at verses 13 to 17. So the Philistines were subdued. And they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then his return was to Ramah where his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So here we see that not only was there peace in the land, but there was actually a lasting peace in Israel. Now, was was every citizen of Israel saved? Possibly, but I think we can say probably not everyone, but, but... possibly. Uh, The detail isn't given to us. But there was nevertheless peace, whatever the case may be. There was peace as wickedness was subdued. That's what's necessary, by the way, for true peace. Wickedness must be subdued. You you wonder why you don't feel a sense of peace? The wickedness, the, the evil, the sin that dwells within you, it has to be subdued. And Israel's repentance led to something of a revival of true religion. 
Samuel's leadership united Israel here, preparing the hearts of the people for a king who would come and lead them. As he continued to annually visit all of the different regions of Israel, as Samuel did, we can, we can be certain that his message was always the same, that his message never, ever changed, and that it's the, the same timeless message that we must be mindful of as well. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, for till now the Lord has helped us. Israel's need wasn't a politician. They, they didn't need a politician. It wasn't a brilliant military strategist. It wasn't some, you know, some, some time alone, some time to themselves to think about things. No, their greatest need was to repent and to cast away their false gods and to turn to the one true living God in single-minded devotion. And God was the one who helped them to reach that point, and He will help you to reach that same point as well. As we consider our own nation right now, can we not say that just as the Philistines were smitten with confusion, our own land is smitten with confusion, as confused as anything that we can possibly imagine? You can't say two plus two equals four. If you can't say that, you are as confused as anything I can even begin to fathom. But let us consider how God uses confusion to judge and destroy His enemies. And let us consider that it's only by God's help, only by God's grace, that we are not counted among His enemies. In Romans 15.4, Paul says of the Old Testament stories like this one, he says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. If we've learned anything from this chapter, if we've learned anything from this book, from Israel's experience, I pray that it will have shown you how much you need God's grace, how much you need His help, and that it has pointed you to the one you need the one who will lead you back to God if and when you are ever tempted to wander or if you are tempted right now to wander the one who will intercede for you the one who will lead you on the paths of true righteousness as Samuel did these things for Israel he was only a faint faint foreshadow of the Lord Jesus so that we might have an unwavering hope as we look back and remember the way that God has always shown His loving kindness, His graciousness, His help to us in countless ways. What's our response to that? The only appropriate response is single-minded devotion to Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for these stories of old that teach us not to hope in vain idols, in false gods, in the things that the world finds hope and comfort in. Oh God, we thank You for the way that they direct us, direct our, our sight to You, the only one who can help us in our greatest need the one whose grace is always sufficient.
And we thank You, O Lord, that You, by Your grace, have granted us repentance, have drawn us to Christ, that You should count us among Your people. Not that there's anything in us that would be worthy of it or deserving of it, but that it's entirely by Your grace. We pray, O Lord, as we consider these things, that You would help us to love You, to serve You, and to stand before You with single-minded devotion. That Christ may be glorified in our lives. To that end, Lord, we pray that You would help us Help us grow in the likeness of Christ, that He may be seen in our lives by those around us for His glory. And in His name we pray. Amen.